And let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to, to gather, Lord, your church, the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that, that as we spend time in your word this morning, that uh, we'd focus on you, Jesus, and that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim, Lord. Father, we just give you permission to, uh, to reorganize our lives a little bit, Lord, to to give us eternal perspective, to set our hearts on eternity. And so, Father, we, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that we would see the, the spiritual things, Lord, that we would uh, see the things that your spirit wants to speak to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to, to uh, change our hearts, to make Christ known to us. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, actually, I thought what we'd do is just uh, pick up here at chapter 15, verse 21, and we'll read a little bit where we left off two weeks ago and uh, get ourselves back in the context of the gospel of Matthew. It says this in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, A woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This story happened in the region of Tyre and Sidon on the coast of the Mediterranean. And um, from this area, we're going to see Jesus is going to depart. He's going to head to the Decapolis, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, at shore of the Galilee. And That area included 10 Gentile cities, the Decapolis, 10 major cities that were uh, under Roman control, but the Romans had given a lot of freedom because they they played the game with Rome. They they played along. They were in league with the Romans. And so the Romans gave authority to that region of the Decapolis. They let them mint their own coins. They let them have their own judicial system. And the area was predominantly Gentile. But before we get there, we read this account of, of this Woman, And where we left off a couple weeks back was just seeing this increasing rejection of Jesus from the people of Israel. And for the first time, he went off and he went to a Gentile region and he ministered to one individual, a woman. And it really starts the whole um, ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles. And now as we're going to watch him move into this other area... uh, Jesus is going to begin to minister to the Gentiles as a multitude. And this is, this is in direct response to the rejection of Jesus that he was experiencing in Israel. And so we read in verse 29, it says this, Jesus went out from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. He healed them so that the crowd wondered 
And when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. You might notice in verse 31 there that it says they, this crowd glorified the God of Israel. This was a Gentile crowd. Mark chapter 7 tells us that Jesus had gone to the region of the Decapolis at this point in the story. And you can't help but marvel a little bit here between the contrast of uh, this crowd and the Jewish leaders. This crowd glorified the God of Israel. They saw these miracles happening. They, they watched their family and, and friends be touched by the power of Jesus. And they glorified the God of Israel. What was happening in Israel as Jesus is doing all this? Or in his previous ministry there, the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. Saying he has a demon. Saying he's doing these things by the... Uh, power of Beelzebul and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish cities that knew the Old Testament scriptures refused to see, refused to repent, refused to put their faith in Jesus. And yet here in these Gentile regions, we see people coming to him in faith, believing in him and the very miracles that he performed amongst his own people that should have convinced them that he was the Messiah. The same sort of miracles were being done in Gentile cities and the Decapolis. And the result was that the crowd was worshiping the God of Israel. Verse 32 says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away, lest they faint on the way. And so here's the picture. Three days have gone by. Jesus is ministering to this crowd. They've run out of food. Ministry is wrapping up in this region of the Decapolis. And so Jesus wanted to feed them a meal, wanted to provide food for this crowd before uh, he sent them off. It kind of reminds me just of what we saw in Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Just as Jesus was ending his ministry in Galilee, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And now here, that was amongst Jewish people. Now here amongst in the Decapolis, he would end uh, the ministry there with spreading the table in the wilderness, so to speak. And he said this, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And verse 33 says, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed a crowd? Now, like I just mentioned, it was in Matthew chapter 14, just in my Bible, that's like, you know, one column, two columns over. Jesus fed 5,000 people, and now here he asks his disciple, you know, let's feed this crowd, and they're like, where are we going to get food to do that? You got to kind of enjoy the humor of the scriptures. I mean, how could these disciples uh, forget a miracle that we're just one chapter removed from in the gospel of Matthew? I have to think, these guys can't be that daft, that foolish. But I think that there is an answer that packs lots of application for you and I in what we see here. And it has to do with the region that Jesus was in. It has to do with the people whom Jesus was ministering to. This was the Decapolis, like, we've seen, like I've been mentioning. This is a Gentile people. These are people that are in league with the Romans. You know, Jesus' ministry was based out of the Galilee, but uh, it was amongst the Jews. That's where he hung out. That's where he did much of his teaching. That's where he developed his disciples. That's where he did many of his miracles. But now Jesus is on the other side of the lake amongst the Gentiles. 
ministering to them as a multitude, as, as this group of people. And I, I think that the disciples were packing this attitude that just said this, certainly Jesus isn't going to do here what he did amongst our people. You know, the, these people are heathens. They're Gentiles. Yeah, he's, he's working. He's doing his, his miracles. But he isn't going to feed these people like he fed us. They've been with him three days. He, he, he fed the Jewish people after, after one day, that crowd of 5,000. This is, I think this was their attitude. That this is the wrong place. This is the wrong time. This is the wrong people. And the same thing can almost happen to you and I in our lives. You know, God blesses us. God, by his spirit, works in our lives. A miracle happens. There's provision. God shows his grace and his love to us. God uh, pours out his spirit upon ourselves. And, and then sometime later, we find ourselves in a similar situation. And we think, I know God was with me in that previous situation. But that was different, you know. I was in Galilee. You know, my quiet time was awesome. I hadn't missed church, you know, for a few weeks or I was reading my Bible a lot back then. I was close to the Lord. I was in a good place. And now, now I'm in the Decapolis, hanging with the, with the wrong people, in the wrong place. I'm not in a good place spiritually. Why should I expect God to meet me in this place? Why should I expect him to do now what he did on my, pa- and on my behalf in the past? Nothing is going to happen. God's not going to see me through this now. Not now, because I'm in the Decapolis. And it was the same mistake that the Canaanite woman made when we we just read about her and talked about her a couple weeks ago. You know, she had this attitude. If I approach Jesus with the right formula, I'll say the right titles, you know, I'll do all the things. And then he's going to bless me and he's going to heal my daughter. And as we saw, it wasn't until she ditched her formula and just got on her knees and worshiped Jesus that that he began to move on her behalf. And how easy it is for us to expect, you know, expect God to bless us because of our worthiness. Because we think, you know, we've earned it because we're hanging out in Galilee. I'm praying. I'm studying. I'm close to the Lord. Of course he's going to bless me. And what we fail to calculate is what the disciples failed to calculate is that, the, that Jesus is compassionate. Jesus had compassion on this multitude. That Greek word translated compassion is a word that describes the retching of his gut. His stomach was upset as he looked upon these people and, and saw their need. You know that feeling when, you're, when your gut's twisting and turning? When Jesus looked out at this hungry crowd, he hurt for them. He had compassion on them. No one was asking him to provide. I love that. Nobody's asking him to provide. The disciples didn't even believe he could provide or would provide in this situation. But Jesus wanted to do something for these people because he was moved with a heart of compassion. You know, what that tells us is this, is that that it's, that it's, a wonderful thing to discover in your life, grace. A wonderful thing to discover that the blessings of God are not based on anything that you or I do. That, 
that Jesus just looks upon us with compassion. He sees our hunger, he sees our need, and he has compassion upon us. You know, I think about this crowd. This crowd of 4,000 men plus women and children were not making any requests of Jesus. They weren't exercising faith. All they were was in the right spot. They were in the place where Jesus was. And that's the same place you and I need to be. You know, often you ever just think, wow, God just blesses my life. I didn't ask for it. I don't deserve it. I don't know what's going on. You know, God, God doesn't bless us because our prayer lives are powerful. He doesn't, you know, bless us because we're so full of great faith or because we're so committed to, you know, fasting or committed to this or that. All of those things are good. Those things are good. We want those characteristics in our life. But too often we associate the blessing with God, of God and the measure with which God blesses us with who we are and what we've earned and what we think that we deserve and what God is going to do to us according to how we have acted. And that's not true. God blesses you and God blesses me because God is compassionate. He's a compassionate God. When we're hurting, he hurts for us. That's the way Jesus is, compassionate and loving and caring and gracious and giving and longing to pour out his blessing upon our lives. And as I read this, I think, you know, the only thing that was key for this Gentile crowd was this. They were hanging out in the place where Jesus was. Didn't have all the formulas figured out. Didn't have all the answers right. Weren't even asking. They were just where Jesus was. And he began in his compassion to work on their behalf. You know, I think, uh, I think that's why hanging out with the church is such a good thing. You know, even talking about koinonia, it's good to be amongst the people of God, to be in that place where, where Jesus is. Because he has said, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. There's something that happens in our lives, a perspective that changes, an attitude, heart attitudes that changes. We are with uh, the people of God because Jesus is there and we experience his blessing. You know what that's like, you know, some Sundays it's like, oh, drag yourself out of bed to get here. And then you leave and you say, wow, I'm so thankful I was with the people of God that I was worshiping Jesus this morning. Verse 34 says, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven basketfuls of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. You know, I pointed this out a couple weeks ago, but you just remember the operation it was for us to you know, feed like a thousand people at Sea Cavalcade. And here's the disciples. There's 12 of them. You know, we had like 60. They are feeding a crowd of 4,000 men plus women and children and handing out bread and fish. And uh, just like when Jesus did the miracle for the 5,000, this miracle takes place in the hands of Jesus. They, they give him the resources that they have. Jesus breaks them and he puts those resources back into the hands of his disciples. And it's the disciples who distribute uh, the food to the multitude. 
And the bread is multiplied in, in their hands as Jesus has broken it. And everyone ate. Everyone is satisfied. And then Jesus ordered that the leftovers be collected so that nothing was wasted. You know, one of the, one of the areas that people who attack the scriptures on, on is actually in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They say that they're the same story. They say that, you know, it's odd, but this is the same story. And I don't know why Matthew retells the whole thing and the numbers are different. But there's some hints in this story that actually tell us that this is a totally different story. And and I think that they're kind of neat. I mean, Mark tells us that Jesus was in the Decapolis, but there's something interesting that we we lose in translation. And I'll just kind of tell you it for fun between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And it's regarding the leftovers that are collected. See, when Jesus fed the 5,000, we read that there were 12 basketfuls collected. And then when they fed the 4,000, there were seven basketfuls of leftovers collected. And the interesting part is the word that we translate into English as basket. Because in the original language, in the Greek, there's, there's two different words used to describe the baskets with which the leftovers were collected. In the feeding of the 5,000, which was the feeding of a Jewish crowd, there were 12 basketfuls left over. And the Greek word used to describe what they put the, put the food in, the leftovers in, is a, is a basket that is a small wicker basket that a Jew would carry like a lunchbox. That it with, you know, a, a, a person traveling from one place to another would put their food in there and then they'd pack their food with them for the day. In the feeding of the 4,000, There were seven basketfuls left over and the Greek word used to translate the baskets is a woven basket with which a Gentile would store the wares of his household. They're large baskets. It's the same word uh, for basket that was the basket that was used to lower Paul from the wall of Damascus when he was escaping. And so it's a little thing, but it demonstrates that one crowd that Jesus ministered to was Jewish and the other crowd that he ministered to was, was Gentile. And the disciples, you got, you got to think their mind is just being blown in the midst of all of this. They, they had God pigeoned into this, oh, we're the chosen people, you know. The Messiah for, is for us, the hope of the gospel, all these things. And the disciples are just having their minds blown as they, as they watch Jesus minister to this woman in Tyre and Sidon. And now uh, to the crowds in the Decapolis. And, and so having fed the Gentile crowd, Having given them a taste of the things to come, the Lord sent them away and uh, he again crosses the Sea of Galilee to the western shore. It says in verse 39, now sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. Magadan is a small village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. When we do our trips to Israel, we just drive past the remains. It's just a little, little tiny village uh, about three miles north of, of Tiberias and Magadan should kind of click something in your brain. There's a character in the gospels that's from this community, Mary Magdalene and Magdala or Magadan is probably the type of uh, highway community where a lonely traveler might seek some company on his way through. You, you catch my drift and Mary worked in that community and it's interesting that Jesus, we're going to see, meets up with some people here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I, I don't know. Sometimes I read the Bible and I just wonder, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. But the Pharisees are 
in this community and they're, wait, they're waiting for Jesus as he arrives and Jesus is going to give to them a teaching about spiritual adultery on this little highway town that was probably a place where lots of people were doing those very acts physically. And so verse 16 says this, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees represent two very different religious groups amongst the people of Israel. Two very different schools of thought. The Pharisees, they were the traditionalists uh, of their day. They were the ones who had lost sight of spiritual realities because they were so into uh, the traditions and the rituals. We talked about this two weeks ago. Washing the hands. It's like, seriously? <laughs> They got, they got into all the, all the rules and they had lost sight of the realities when they were just living for traditions. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the other end of the pendulum. They were kind of like the theological liberals of their day, rationalists who uh, viewed theology through the filter of reason and human knowledge. And uh, they kind of, eliminated emotional response and, and, and didn't believe, you know, in, in spirits or angels or the resurrection. They turned matters of faith into just a, an ethical lifestyle. You know, religion is about helping you be a better person. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees represented two very different schools of thought, two extremes on the pendulum of religion and they were not united. They were two groups that stood opposed to one another in Judaism. Uh, they were opposed to one another on most matters of theology. But here for the very first time, we see them united. And they're united in something. And it's at this. They were united in their opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees had accused Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of the devil in those days, the rabbis actually taught that a demon could perform earthly miracles, but only God could work a, a miracle in the heavens, in the skies, like, like things like we read about in the, the Old Testament, like having the sun stand still or having the shadow move back some steps. Only God could work miracles that were related to the sky. And so when they say to Jesus, show us a sign from heaven, they're essentially saying this, you know, so what? You fed 5,000. So what? You fed 4,000. So what? You walked on water. You healed a leper. You might have a demon. <laughs> Show us a sign from heaven to prove that you're really from God. And so Jesus follows their line of reason. Verse 2, chapter 16. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. Begins to point them to the sky. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. What was Jesus' response to their, their, their request for a sign from heaven? He said, Look at the sky. You look at the sky and you know how to predict the weather. How come you, you can't see the signs and understand the very days in which you live? 
You know, when we read the Bible, we see that in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had prophesied when the Messiah would come on the scene. I, re- I really believe that, right? Pretty much to the day when Jesus would be revealed. And Jesus is saying, can you discern the days in which you live? Don't you understand Bible prophecy? You see, Jesus knew that, that the, if the religious community had been really studying the word of God like they should have been, they would have known that they were living in the exact time Daniel prophesied the Messiah would come, that he would appear. Th- their times and their days were alive with signs. I mean, when you think of all of history, is there ever a time in which Jesus, you know, did miracles like he was doing in those days? And so he would not give them a sign from heaven, but instead he says, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about a sign. It's a sign from beneath, from hell. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. We, we've seen this come up before in the gospel of Matthew. As, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the son of man would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. You know the story. Jonah's thrown overboard into the sea. And as you read the story of Jonah, the way that he communicates, it's, it's like seemingly he is in hell while he is in the belly of this great fish before he's puked up on the shore. And Jonah himself was a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus says, that's the one sign, I'll promise you. The sign of Jonah. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You know, miracles, I mean, we love signs. We we love miracles. We want to see the wonders. But miracles never bring anyone to faith. Did you know that? Miracles might satisfy your curiosity, but they will never bring you to a place where you'll have a true born-again salvation experience. You know, some people say things like, you know, if I could see it, then I'll believe it. You know, I just need a miracle. I just need to see a wonder. I just need to see some, you know, of the magic of the kingdom, and then I'll come in. But the Bible actually says this, that it's the other way around, that if you believe then you will see. See, signs and wonders can confirm scripture, but they cannot save a sinner. Only faith can save a sinner. You know, I was reading, I was reading this week uh, just a book in my own devotional stuff, and um, the author was talking about the revelation of God in nature and just how some can see it and some refuse to see it. And... And see, as Christians, we, we make a decision, an act of faith. The Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that it is faith that says, I look out and I see the wonders of God's creation and I believe in him. I believe that there is a God who exists. We believe and then what happens is we see more. We begin to see the hand of God at work. We say, oh, wow, God's at work there. God's at work there. God's at work there. But when we say, no, I need to see and then I'll believe. It doesn't work. The religious leaders would have believed if they would have seen, show us a sign from heaven and then we'll believe, but they refused to believe and so what happened? They could not see the signs that were right in front of them. 
feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000, walking on the water. I mean, there had never been more signs in front of them. All the proof they needed to see that Jesus was the Messiah was right there, but they refused to believe. And so it says, he left them and departed. We're going to see this, not this morning, but further in the chapter, of, uh, chapter 16, that this is a major shift in Jesus' ministry. Verse 5 says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Mark's gospel says they had one loaf with them. So this is the same instance. Obviously, the disciples were discussing this fact that they had forgotten to bring any bread. We didn't, we didn't bring any food. And so as they discussed the matter, it seems that Jesus saw an opportunity to teach them. And so he said this, verse 6. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. You know, the disciples don't catch the metaphor that Jesus is using. They thought Jesus was talking on a physical, material level when he was bringing them a spiritual lesson and application for their lives. That same thing happens all the way through the Gospels. You see it all over the place. You know, Jesus would speak of the spiritual realm, and people would think that he's only talking on a physical level. You know, like Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, you know, you must be born again. And he said, can I go back into my mother's womb? You know, Jesus wasn't talking on a physical level. Or in John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that he would give living water and that she would never, and those who had it would never thirst again. And she says, Lord, give me that water. And she failed to discern that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit, that he was talking in spiritual realities. Jesus spoke to the crowd one time and he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And, and they thought he was talking about the practice of like cannibalism, like actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They couldn't see past the material, physical realm and take hold of the spiritual I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel so caught in, in my walk with Jesus, so caught and torn and pulled between these two realities of the physical, material world and the realities of the spiritual world, like, like you're being stretched and pulled in two directions. You feel like that sometimes? Jesus wants us to, to be free from the physical world. We, we get so caught up in it. And, and Jesus longs for us to gain the perspective of eternity, a, a, a spiritual perspective. But just like the disciples, so often I'm like, I can only see things on the physical. I, I just wonder, you know, how many times I'm like, but I have no bread, Jesus. And, you know, as we think about this, only the this spiritual realm is eternal. That's actually why it's really important that the body of Christ comes together. For me, this was one of the themes in this text. Because when we come together, it's times when we're saying, no, we're going to set aside physical realities so that we can come together and focus on some spiritual realities and encourage each other to gain an eternal perspective. And so as this is the same thing is going on with the disciples, Jesus says this in verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you have little faith. 
Why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? But where are the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, like I said, Jesus was not speaking about physical bread. He's already proved to them that he can provide for the 12. He can provide uh, for the physical needs of men. He is God. Not having bread is not a problem for Jesus. You can take hope in that. Not having bread is not a problem for Jesus. And he had proved that. You know, the 5,000, the 4,000, Jesus was speaking about the things of God. You know, one of the things I've learned, like, over the years in ministry of doing pastoral ministry, especially since I've been at CTK is like, sometimes you're looking at budgets and you're like, Oh, okay. Well, we sense God leading. I don't know where that's going to come from, but, and I've like just found that whenever God gives a direction, just do it because provision is coming like that. He's going to bring provision. I found that in my own personal life too. It's like every time I'm like panicked about bread, God brings provision. See, Jesus can multiply bread. It's like, but that thing can be, that, that, that discussion, those thoughts can become so overwhelming in our lives, can't they? It's like, whoa, God, I don't know the numbers. I'm not sure. I'm like panic. Where's provision for this going to come from? Where's provision for that going to come from? Jesus is like, are you serious, man? Haven't I taught you? Haven't you got it that I can meet all of those needs? Like, that's like the easiest of things for Jesus. And so to these disciples that were, were focused on bread, Jesus, I think, gives a warning here that we need to beware of. It's a, it's a warning that can creep, uh, a reality that can creep into our lives when we're concerned about physical, material things. And Jesus says this, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were about legalism. Beware the leaven of legalism. The, the, the uh, Sadducees were about liberalism. Beware the, the leaven of liberalism. See, we know this. You can keep all the rules and not have Jesus in your heart. You can, you know, make all the ethical changes and have all the, everything looking right in your life and yet not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you could reduce the gospel down to a religion that is supposed to help you become a better person and have nothing, really nothing. See, the gospel and the things that Jesus is talking about here is about knowing God and being, being known by God and, and living for the reality of something else beyond this physical realm, his kingdom. It's about having life and having it to the full. And so, you know, consider this, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't see the signs of the times that were right in front of them. And the disciples also have a problem with their perception. 
they could not perceive the things that Jesus was saying. The, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples had something going on here in this chapter 16 that's similar. It's a little different, but it's similar. They shared it in common. And I would say this, the, the revelation of these, these first 12 verses is the revelation of the absolute inability of a man to understand the things of God unless he is aided by the Holy Spirit. Unless God brings those reality into your, into your life. Unless God makes us aware of spiritual realities, we'll always live on the plane of the physical. So verse 13 says this. We're going to kind of breeze over this 13 to 20 this morning, and we're going to take a deeper look at it the next time we're back in Matthew here. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? When Jesus departed from this encounter with the religious leaders, hopped on the boat, headed off with his disciples, they didn't have any bread with them. They, they got off the boat and they travel up to the, all the way up north, all the way to the upper region of uh, the boundaries of Israel on foot, going to Caesarea Philippi from the Galilee is a two-day journey. So they're, they're hoofing her here. They're covering some ground. Uh, the region of Caesarea Philippi was ruled by Herod's brother, Philip. And he was a tetrarch of that province. The area had been called this, uh, the Panai, prior. That's what it was known as before, after the Greek god Pan, Panai. And Philip had changed the name to Caesarea in honor of the Roman emperor. It was called Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from another city called Caesarea that was on the coast of the Mediterranean. And the region of Caesarea Philippi, Panai, had been a region of major idolatry, pagan worship, human sacrifice, all sorts of things. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. And there at the base of the mountain, uh, on, the, on the rock face that's there, is a, is a cave. And it's amazing when you go there. Where this cave is, right out of the ground flows a, a river just comes out of the ground. Uh, the Benai, the, a tributary, one of the three tributaries of the Jordan River. And here this cave was a place where the pagans would make, make human sacrifice. It said that when they would sacrifice a human, what they would look for was the blood of the sacrifice to come out into the river. And then they believed that Pan had accepted their sacrifice. And so I think that Jesus is right in this region. He's right there. With, he's within eyeshot of this whole thing. And this conversation begins with the disciples after a couple days of travel. They're, they're standing within view of Mount Hermon and the snowy peaks that towered above them. There's massive rock faces at the foot of the mountain. The tributary of the Jordan's coming out of the ground like a, like a spring at the base of this mountain. And this cave was considered by ancient people to be the gateway to hell, the gateway to Hades, the, the, the gateway into the netherworld. And so this is where Jesus is. And he asks his disciples, who the people say the Son of Man is? Over 80 times in, in the scriptures, Jesus is referred to or referred to himself as the Son of Man. That title speaks of, of his humility 
It speaks of his humanity. It speaks of his ability to relate to us. It speaks of him prophetically. Daniel said that the Messiah, Daniel chapter 7, said the Messiah would be known as the Son of Man. So the disciples give a response, verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That right there, but who do you say that I am? Is the most important question ever asked. It's the most important question any person could ever answer in their lives. That question from Jesus, but who do you say that I am? There were all sorts of opinions floating around about who Jesus is, what the crowd was saying, what the multitude was saying. Those voices still speak out in this world. There's all sorts of opinions and thoughts and, and things that people say about Jesus. But the question that really matters is this, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? And as you consider that question of Jesus, I, I would say this, look at like eternal life hinges on that question right there. Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, whatever other people say about Jesus, it, it doesn't matter if, if you haven't formed your own opinion. If you can't answer that for yourself. And Simon speaks up and he answers. He says this in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See that there? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's why I believe Jesus took a two-day trip to take his disciples to this very geographic spot to teach this lesson. It's the first time the church is ever mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to dive into this more next time we're, we're here. But Jesus uses, uh, well, Simon Peter's reply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I, I, I just, in my mind, when Jesus hears that, I think his face lit up. Like, I just see, like, if there was ever joy on Jesus' face, which I think there was all the time, but I think his smile was extra big at this moment. And Jesus uses two, two Greek words. He says, I, I, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus uses two Greek words for, for stone here in this passage. He uses petros, Peter, which means small stone. You are a small stone, and upon Uh, This rock, Petra, this massive stone, I will build my church. Jesus is saying this, blessed are you, little stone. Blessed are you, little stone, because upon the massive stone of your confession, Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. Upon this confession, I will build my church. See, Peter's confession in Matthew 16 was not an emotional response. It wasn't like, wow, I saw the miracle and I believe Jesus like we talked about earlier. His answer was carefully thought through. His answer was based on a spiritual revelation that 
The Father had given to him, Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You know, it's interesting that Jonah is mentioned here again. Remember we talked about Jonah earlier? The sign will be, the only sign I'll give is the sign of Jonah. Uh, That is the sign of the resurrection. It's interesting that Peter's name by birth was Simon. That was the name that his parents had given him. Jesus changed it to Peter, called him Peter, little rock. And Jesus refers to the name given to Simon at his physical birth. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And Peter's father, Simon's father, was a man named Jonah. I just thought that was interesting as I'm reading this. And I think Jesus is saying this. As he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, essentially he is, he is calling Peter a son of the resurrection. Though Peter did not yet understand his confession of faith, you know, flesh and blood had not revealed it to him. Simon called Peter would would believe in the resurrection and he would proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the father in heaven had revealed to Simon the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. A revelation that no person can have unless they are aided by the Holy Spirit. And like I said, in that moment, I just think Jesus' face lit up. Just lit right up. See, true conversion is not, not based on some miraculous miracle that we observe or based on some emotion that we stir up or some event in our lives, true conversion takes place when a man or a woman says this, I've concluded that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. And I'm going to give my life to follow him. I'm going to give my life to follow him. And Peter made that Confession, there, were, there are other times in the scriptures that, that people identified Jesus as the Son of God, but it never got a reaction from Jesus. You know, uh, that happened with which one of the disciples? One was under the tree. Was it Nathaniel or Philip? Jesus said, I saw you before you were, before, when you were under the tree. And he says, whoa, you're the Son of God. No reaction from Jesus. Philip was responding emotionally. But here... Peter answers the question based on a revelation that the Father has given him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 19, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're going to talk about this more in detail Uh, But the binding and loosing is not a picture of heaven doing what we want. It's like, okay, I got the keys. I'm just going to open this door, go check out what's in there, go over here. It's not you and I opening uh, the doors and heaven doing our bidding. What it is, is it's a picture of there being harmony between us and heaven. Us and the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying, you know, here's the, here's the keys to the kingdom. Go do whatever you want, you know, and I'll make it happen. Uh, it's actually the opposite. We are binding and loosing as it is done in heaven. We are to be in harmony with Jesus. I'll give you the keys. You be in harmony with me. Whatever, you, whatever I open, you will open. 
And then it says here that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so like I, I mentioned, there's a lot going on here in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 13 to 20. We're going to revisit it and dive in a lot uh, deeper and look at some of the detail. But until then, I, I just want to leave you with some applications from our passage this morning, okay? Four things. Be where Jesus is. That's what this chapter tells us. Be where Jesus is. Hang out where he is. You know, when you, when you shower, you know, you know, hopefully you showered this morning before you came to church. You know, you can turn the shower on and then not stand under the water. <laughs> you got to get under the spout. And the same thing has to happen for us spiritually. Get your life under the shower of God's blessings. Find the spot God is blessing and go there. Second thing is this, is that Jesus is seeking to help his disciples in this story gain a perspective and the values of eternity in their lives. Setting them free from a mind that is always set on physical material realities. And this passage tells us this, Jesus can meet your physical needs. So if you're concerned about physical needs this morning, I want to tell you, Jesus can meet your physical needs. Ask him to develop in you a spiritual perspective to look on the other plane of the reality of eternity. And one of the ways that happens is by gathering together with the body of Christ. Third thing I think here as we go through this passage is this, is that you and I need the Holy Spirit. We need the reality of the Spirit of God in our lives to reveal to us the things of God. I encourage you, invite the Holy Spirit always to speak to you. Spirit of God, I need you. I I can't see without you. Open my eyes to see the reality of your kingdom. And the last one is this. True conversion, true faith in Jesus Christ is not something that has its, its foundation set on emotion or some event. True conversion takes place when a, when a person says, I have concluded in my heart and in my mind that Jesus Christ really is who he claimed to be. He is the son of the living God. And I'm giving my life to follow him. Look at if you've not made a decision for Jesus Christ, if you've not given your life to him, what I would ask you to do is this, is to pray. Say, Father in heaven, I need you by your spirit to make known to me the reality of who Jesus is. I want to know who he is. I want to know who Jesus is. Would you make him known to me? And I'll tell you what, if you invite God to do that in your life, the Father who is in heaven will make Jesus Christ known to you. Like Peter. You put that smile on Jesus' face. Jesus say, man, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just uh, 
We thank you. Well, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. I thank you that um, you are a God who, first of all, can, can meet all of our physical needs, our material needs. And Lord, right now, just uh, we take the time to just repent, Lord, which simply means to change our thinking, to turn from one reality, to turn from sin and turn to the reality of Jesus. And it is sin to think that you can't look after me. And so, Jesus, I just repent of that. We repent of that. You can meet all my needs, Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry for not trusting you. Jesus, I'm sorry for not looking to you. Jesus, I just turned from that thinking and, that, and I, I, we want to have the, uh, the thinking of your kingdom. We want to live for spiritual realities. And so, God, bring us to that place in our lives so that we live for spiritual things. Jesus, this morning we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Thank you that you promised that you'd send him as a counselor, as a teacher who would reveal to us the things of God and the realities of your nature, Jesus. And so, Father, we just, we just say before you, before your son, before the spirit of God, Holy Spirit, we need you. Teach us. Fill our lives. Help us to live for the realities of your kingdom. And Lord, this morning, I, I, I pray uh, for those that are here that have maybe not yet made a confession of faith, who have not surrendered their lives to you, who, who maybe their faith at this point is just built on something emotional. Father, I ask that by your spirit, you would reveal Christ Jesus to them, the son of the living God. Father, we just said, flesh and blood can't make that known. I can't make that known. We can't make that known. We, we proclaim the gospel, Lord, but it is your spirit who makes Christ known to each individual. And so, Father, we just invite that work right now. I, I, I pray, Lord, that if there are those asking in their hearts, Jesus, Father, would you make Jesus known to me? I pray, God, that you would just bring forth that reality in their lives. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church that we're going to look at more in the weeks to come, Lord. God, help us to be a healthy expression of that body that you are building. I thank you, Jesus, that it is you who are building your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. And so, Father, we take hope in that. And, Jesus, we, we look to you this morning. And, uh, Jesus, we bless you and we praise you. And we honor you, your name, amen.